listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagen. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or visit our website, The Game on Glio Podcast, for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. The word goodbye, the sensation behind the word, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. What does goodbye mean? What does it feel like? Why is it so hard? When I was a kid, we used to go travel to visit relatives, grandparents. Every time that we would go and visit my grandparents and it was time to leave, I would cry. I never wanted to say goodbye to my grandparents. For some of you, this word is a challenge. It's the challenge of your life. To get through this is to get through raging loneliness, strength-draining grief. You sleep alone. You walk the hallways of a silent house. You catch yourself calling out their name or reaching for their hand. You feel quarantined, isolated. The separation has exhausted your spirit. The rest of the world has moved on. You ache to do the same, but you can't. You can't say goodbye. I'm paraphrasing a tiny bit, but this paragraph is from a book called You'll Get Through This by Max Licato. It's a book I'm reading right now. It was gifted by a dear friend. The purpose of that chapter is to say goodbye. And what does that truly look like? What does it mean? When we've lost someone so close to us, so vital to us, Even after they've gone, the concept, the idea of saying goodbye to them, of letting go, it is so hard to do. Even though Mike is gone, I haven't really said goodbye. I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know what that means. I miss him. And the words that Max writes in this chapter, it's exactly how it feels. It is raging loneliness. C.S. Lewis The author of The Chronicles of Narnia writes, In one sense, your grief will always be with you. Losing a loved one is like having your leg amputated. You don't get over an amputated leg. The wound may heal, but the leg will never grow back. You'll always have that absence in your life. You'll always walk with a limp. He wrote about this in a grief observed after he lost his wife. And that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like my leg has been amputated. I never really knew how to describe it until now, but those words fit perfectly. I will adapt and I will go on, but I'll always walk with a bit of a limp because a big part of my life and who I've been for 20 years is gone. When Max talks about saying goodbye in his book, he talks about it in the sense of how goodbye is not really goodbye. That as their soul has moved on, it waits for you in heaven. 
and that that is the promise of God, you will all be reunited once again in heaven. Now, I'm a person of faith, and so I truly do believe, want to believe, that Mike is waiting for me up in heaven. The idea of the goodbye here on earth not being a forever goodbye, it's tantalizing. It's something I truly want to believe in and hold on to. And yet, the thought of waiting 40 or more years to see him again, it's daunting to think about. Goodbyes are complex. They are heart-wrenching. They are not easy. And this is all part of grief. This is all part of the grieving process. How long does grief take? It's an age-old question. It is a question that is asked over and over again. But the answer is, grief takes as long as it takes. There is no answer. There is no manual to get through it. It takes as long as it takes. It has to be worked through. It has to be softened. You have to feel your way through it, sense your way through it. It's like cozying up to a blanket. You have to sit with it. Let it be part of you. And I'm still navigating my way through that process. In A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis writes, In grief, nothing stays put. One keeps emerging from a phase but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I'm on a spiral? But if I'm on a spiral, am I going up or down it? That's what this feels like. It's a spiral. You're going in circles and sometimes you feel like you're going up and sometimes you feel like you're going down. And for every three or four steps forward, there's a step or two back. This month, nine months since my husband has passed, we celebrated Independence Day, 4th of July, a long weekend of celebrations, of fireworks, of time off from work, of gatherings and barbecues and time with family. The 4th of July is like a second wedding anniversary to me. It's a holiday that has been very dear to Mike and I, something we celebrated because 20 years ago, this 4th of July, my husband and I got together. We had a huge party with friends. We all slept in tents. We watched fireworks over the lake. And he and I connected. And our journey began. And every 4th of July, no matter where we were in the world, whether we were traveling or just with family or at a friend's wedding, we took time to make a big deal out of the 4th of July because we knew how life-changing that moment was for us. And so it was another first for me. The first time since I was 23 years old that I had to celebrate this holiday, or at least be in this holiday, without him by my side. Grief takes as long as it takes. Mike will forever be in my heart, and I am trying to move on, one baby step at a time. But he will always be a part of my heart, and so that word goodbye, oh, it's tough. In this episode today, our guest coming up is another caregiver, a young widower, who lost her husband to GBM. She talks about the courage they both had, their journey and their path and their struggles. She is courageous and she gives us some hope about what may come next for others like me. She shares an amazingly inspirational story about where she is now in her journey and it's something you won't wanna miss. 
It's coming up next after a quick word from our partner. When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited a dozen of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone. With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us again. This is the Game on Glio podcast. Welcome back. We are joined now by a GBM widow and caregiver, Katie Schwartzmeyer Stearns. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your deceased husband, Jesse. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you guys met, when you guys met, and uh, who he was? So Jesse and I met on Match.com in, I want to say it was the end of April in 2014. I had actually been on and off Match for about a year and a half, had some really terrible experiences, and I had just about a week left of my subscription, and this really adorable man. He liked one of my pictures, but he didn't send me a message or anything. And I was looking at his profile, reading about him. And I said, he seems like a really nice guy. I wonder why he didn't uh, reach out to me. So I just sent him their version of a flirt back. And uh, within an hour, he had sent me a message. We chatted for a few days. And pretty much from the first time that we met in person, we were basically inseparable. Oh, wow. Jesse was the kind of man that he just had a way of putting everybody around him at ease. He was just the goofiest person you would ever meet, always laughing about something, always trying to make everybody feel welcome and included. He had no trouble making himself look silly if it would make you laugh. And um, he was just the easiest person to be around. Um, it's really the only way that I can describe him. How long were you guys together? before he was diagnosed? We got engaged about five months after we met, and we were married nine months after that. For some reason, we seem to have a thing with the number 25. He proposed to me on October 25th. We married on July 25th. And on March 25th of the following year, uh, we found ourselves in the Strong Memorial Hospital emergency room. In Rochester, New York. Okay. He was having some unusual migraine symptoms, which he had never had migraines before, but I have. I've had them since I was a teenager. And the things that he said seemed like they were pretty textbook until he said that he couldn't remember how to tell his boss that they needed more paper towels. In all my years of migraines, I've never forgotten how to find words. So I was instantly concerned. And this was actually a couple of days before we found ourselves in the ER. But two days later, it happened again. And he couldn't remember his doctor's name. He couldn't remember where his doctor was located. So 
his manager advised him to go to the emergency room. By the time we got there, his symptoms, of course, had passed. Uh, we waited for five hours to be seen. Mm-hmm. They said probably just migraine. We're probably doing overkill um, by doing a CAT scan, but we're going to do it just um, just for completeness. 11 o'clock at night, we're laughing about what in the world are we going to find to eat at this hour? Because um, we had both been sitting in there all evening, and we never expected that they were going to put us in one of the little side rooms and tell us that, they found something abnormal on his CAT scan and they were going to admit him right away. Wow. So this was at around midnight? A little bit before midnight. And it was eight months to the day after we were married. Okay. So when he was diagnosed originally, did they say, did they tell you what they think it was? Or did they just say, we found something abnormal and we're going to do surgery? I mean, how did that play out? I call it the seagull treatment. They swooped in, they left a mess all over us, and then they swooped back out again. All they told us was, we found something abnormal on your CAT scan and we're going to go and get the neurology team. We were admitted that night. Um, They did further scans to make sure that it wasn't um, any kind of a secondary tumor, that there weren't any spots anywhere else in his body that they were concerned with. They never actually said the word tumor. They just said something abnormal. They said that it could be a tumor. It could be an infection. They're not sure, and they won't know until they get him opened up and see what was in there. Now, how old was he? Uh, He was 40. He was 40 when this all started? Yes. Okay. So when did you guys find out what was really going on? So the following day, his sister came to visit, and she um, had been a nurse for a long time with the Unity Hospital System here in Rochester, and she worked with a very prominent neurosurgeon, um, Dr. Maurer, and she said that if this was my head, if it was my son's head, I would want Dr. Maurer operating on him. So if, with our permission, she spoke with Dr. Maurer's team, and we actually transferred over to Unity Health. And they performed the surgery about three or four days after that. They um, noticed some swelling that uh, they wanted to get under control before they tried to go in for surgery. And it was at that time that Dr. Maurer came from surgery and said he believed that it was an astrocytoma. And so now for anybody who's listening, an astrocytoma is a different form of brain cancer. It is a brain tumor. Um, It is not glioblastoma, but it is uh, brain cancer. So Katie, tell me a little bit when, when you guys heard this diagnosis, I mean, what was going through your and Jesse's head? Just fear, really. You know, they, they tell you don't ever go on Google, but what else are you supposed to do when you find out that your husband has something that it is definitely cancer. I immediately found myself on Google. Mm. What is this astrocytoma? What are his chances? And I did see that uh, actually the grade four astrocytoma is the glioblastoma. Mm -hmm. He kept the most positive attitude. Uh, He kept saying that he was chosen for this because he was going to beat it. And it was about a week after the surgery that they received the pathology results and they confirmed that it was what they called an anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a grade three. He impressed upon us that it was not a glioblastoma at this time. Um, and we had a lot of options to fight. 
And in fact, they ended up going in about three weeks later to, um, to do a second surgery to remove another large mass to be able to get a little bit better results from the chemotherapy and the radiation. Okay. Going to his treatments, we were very optimistic. We were believing from the beginning that he was going to win. Now, you guys hadn't, at this point, you guys hadn't been together for more than a couple of years, correct? That's right. We were just shy of two years together when this happened. Wow. So now you guys are in the thick of the chemo treatment and the radiation treatment after he was diagnosed. What was that like? I mean, how did this process play out for you guys? Well, it was actually ironic that right before they found the tumor, Jesse and I had just started trying to start a family together. And the day that we were supposed to be going to the fertility clinic to find out what was happening, why things weren't working yet, was the day that he was rushed into the hospital. Uh, so now we found out he's going to need radiation and chemotherapy. Immediately, we went back to the fertility center and said, well, we need to preserve his fertility before we start these treatments. And within a matter of two weeks of each other, we found out first about the cancer. Then they told us that due to what they found in our tests, our options for having a family were going to be either in vitro fertilization or nothing. So we went virtually overnight from being blissful newlyweds trying to start our family together to facing chemotherapy and invasive fertility treatments with each other. I'm so sorry to hear that, Katie. And I I know what that feels like um, to a degree because my husband and I were faced with very similar circumstances, ironically. It impresses me that you guys had the wherewithal to run right back to the fertility clinic. I wish I had had that wherewithal, that thinking, but everything happens so lightning quick in those kind of situations. It sounds like you guys put some stuff aside so that you could maybe proceed with that down the road after his treatment ended. Is that how you guys decided to go forward? I actually battled with myself a lot about if I was going to even bring it up to him. I felt selfish in asking about our family plans when we just got this life-altering news about him. I adore his mother. She's a wonderful lady. We're sitting in the meeting with the doctor and she asked him, now they need to have babies. What do we, what do we do about that? So she was actually the one to bring up the subject. So I was very thankful for that. And I asked him later, I said, I don't really feel right mentioning this, but what do we do? And he said, well, this is important too. You know, we really want this family. We want this baby. So let's not wait. Let's just do it now because we feel comfortable that things are going to go the way we want, but we can't say that for certain. Mm -hmm. So before he started his chemotherapy, we went back to the fertility center to freeze um, specimens. And immediately after he finished his radiation therapy, I started my first round of in vitro therapy. Wow. So you guys did that back to back. We did. And then when he finished radiation, you guys went right into IVF treatment. We did. Wow. That's a lot to take on. And I just commend you guys. It takes a lot of strength and fortitude to walk that path. There's just no words. I'm really impressed with the amount of strength both of you had to 
hold on to the vision and the dream that you guys had. So now walk us through what happened after that. You guys started the IVF treatment. Was he in a delay pattern? Was he still doing chemotherapy? I know that when IVF starts, because you guys had put specimens aside, was he doing chemotherapy still while you guys were doing the IVF? He was. So he went into what they considered to be the maintenance dosage of his chemotherapy, where he was doing five pills, five nights in a row, Mm -hmm. and then 23 days off. And he would do that every four weeks. And that was indefinite until they said that the tumor was gone. Unfortunately, that point never came to pass. But he was continuing with the maintenance doses while I was going through the the in vitro. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of people asked me, how in the world was I managing both of those at the same time? And as strange as it sounds, the in vitro gave me something to look forward to. I can understand that. Yeah, it was stressful, but I was going into the fertility center three days a week to monitor my progress. And it was exciting seeing that everything that we were working towards, at least with my in vitro, was working almost in real time. But all of a sudden, we found that we brought bed bugs home from the hospital. Oh. That was the, the thing that finally made me lose my composure, was having to treat my home for bed bugs. You know, nothing ever happens in a singular path, right? It's always right. kind of in threes. <laughs> Everything just all happens at <laughs> once. I have to ask, though, listening to your story, I'm reminded of how I felt and everything that I was going through. As you were doing IVF treatments and... Your husband is doing his maintenance chemotherapy. How were you emotionally handling all of this? Because not only are you going through hormonal up and downs, you know, your body is going through different changes because of the IVF, but, you know, you're also trying to take care of your husband who you love. And like you said, you guys had just gotten married and, you know, you were working on starting a family and it's almost like you didn't have a chance to even really take a breath. So I can't imagine emotionally, how did you keep yourself upright? Honestly, looking back, I don't know how I kept myself going. When this whole thing went on, Jesse and I were trying to compete in what they call a Four Seasons Challenge here in Rochester, which was a half marathon in winter, spring, summer, and fall. We completed the winter one together. And I wanted to push him in a wheelchair for the spring one because he had just had his surgery. Um, But as it turned out, he had his second surgery the day before the race. Um, So I just, I wrote his name and the number he was supposed to have on my arm. And so I ran with him with me in that way, since he couldn't be there with me physically, Mm -hmm. just staying engaged with my training, keeping my focus on what's the next goal? What's the next bite-sized piece that we can break off and we can try to put together was really the only way that I was able to keep any kind of sanity because everything was just so big and coming at me so fast that, you know, the only way really to get through it was to break it down into smaller pieces. That's exactly, that's exactly how I, how I handled Mike's diagnosis because we were weeks away from adopting our first little baby girl uh, when he was diagnosed. And as our listeners know, that was the hardest decision to make was to have to walk away from that. 
but in the enormity of the diagnosis and the surgery being literally within three days and then chemo and radiation pretty much right after that, it was in small chunks. Everything was just in, can you know, what can I handle in the next three hours and the next three hours after that and the next three hours after that. Mm-hmm. After you guys did the IVF procedure and he's doing his maintenance chemo, walk me through what the next few months looked like. You know, what were the routines after your IVF procedure? Did you guys get any good news or was it something where it took more than one round? Because I know for a lot of women, sometimes uh, IVF procedures don't take the first time out. On our second attempt, it worked. We did conceive a daughter she actually will be four years old next week. Uh-huh. She is uh, she is just his spitting image, the most wonderful little girl. And for a long time after that, his treatments were successful. His doctor would always call us the day after his MRI to tell us that things were moving in the right direction. And for a majority of my pregnancy, things were going great. Everything changed um, about 10 days before my due date. And then um, things started going back in the wrong direction again. So now I have to ask, throughout all of this, because we stressed how old Jesse was when this all started, how old were you? At this point, we're a couple of weeks away from my due date. He was 41 and I was 33. That is extremely young to have to walk through this journey uh, with the love of your life. Yeah. So now you're 10 days away from your due date. What changed? Can you tell our listeners what was going on at that point with you and with Jesse? So his first symptoms and clues that something weren't right was that he was sleeping a lot. And I started to notice in the days leading up to his repeat hospitalization that his speech was starting to slip again. He was starting to talk a little differently, um, struggle a little bit to find words. Hmm. I'll never forget. It was it was June 4th, and we went to see Neil Diamond in concert. It was his 50th anniversary tour. I did not mind how close it was to my due date. I said I was going to take the chance, and we were going to go to this concert. Jesse was driving, and he couldn't remember how to get to the parking garage where he had driven me just a month before to go to one of my racing events. I knew right away that something was wrong. Next day was a Monday. Mm -hmm. I was at work training my replacement for when I went on maternity leave. And all of a sudden, my parents walked through the door. Unusual for them to visit me at work. They said that Jesse had a seizure and he was in the hospital and they were there to take me home. So what was going on at that point? What were the doctors telling you? They said that his scans were unclear. They weren't able to tell if he was having inflammation or if the tumor had regrown. So they wanted to put him on some steroids, give him some other medications to try to get the inflammation down and see what they were looking at. Okay, and then what happened after that? Well, the next morning I had a routine appointment with my OB Mm -hmm. and without much surprise, my blood pressure was elevated. (laughs) But (laughs) she said, well, I can certainly understand why your blood pressure is a little elevated right now, but they also were running some other routine checks for preeclampsia and found some things that were concerning. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to come back to the hospital that night for some follow-up testing just to be safe. And fortunately, 
I was also being seen at Unity Hospital. I received a phone call from Jesse actually that day saying that they believed that it was inflammation that they were seeing on his MRI. So that soothed my emotional distress. And I went in that night after I finished my shift at work. I went up to his room just to see him for a minute. And then I went downstairs for what I believed to be a repeat urine test, a blood test, and a blood pressure check. Mm -hmm. I was not expecting them to hand me papers saying to consent to induction. I said, excuse me, what, what, are, what are you talking about? We're, nobody talked to me about doing an induction tonight. My husband is upstairs. Uh-huh. I can't leave him right now. They suspected that I might have a severe form of preeclampsia called HELP syndrome, which is actually deadly in one in four women. So I was not leaving that room until I delivered the baby. Oh, wow. Fortunately, my sister-in-law had come down with me, the very same one who was working at Unity Hospital. Um, So she was able to go upstairs and tell my husband what was happening. And they let him come down and actually be with me in the maternity ward as long as he was back in his room in time for his medications. Oh, my gosh. Looking back on it, it's really not funny. um, But I can't help but chuckle seeing the pair of us in our matching hospital counts (laughs) while I'm being induced. And he's there trying to figure out what's going on with his tumor. Boy, when, when it pours, it really pours. It really does. So he was released the next day after two days of attempting to induce me. My vitals had all stabilized and they concluded that I did not actually have HELP syndrome. So they were going to release me and then we'll just revisit in a couple of weeks if you go past your due date and then we'll see what's happening. You got sent home. Jesse was sent home as well. And so now what happened after that? Did they determined that the inflammation was just due to scar tissue? Did they have a reasoning for the inflammation that was there or were they looking to do more tests? So the verbiage that his oncologist used is it looks like the tumor is trying to wake up again. Okay. It was inflamed, but they said that it looked like some of the blood vessels that were growing out of the tumor looked like they were starting to try to activate again. So now what was their next course of action? At that point, they stopped him on his chemotherapy pill and started him on an immunotherapy called Avastin, biweekly infusion. And then did he pick up chemo again after that, or was it just the infusion? They tried just the infusion for two months, and then a repeat scan showed that the tumor was, in fact, regrowing. At that point, obviously, um, I had delivered the baby. Fortunately, he was well enough to be able to be there with me. And the baby was about two months old when we went back for his repeat testing. He started having seizures more regularly at this point. The first time I saw it happen, Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was happening. It was just in his face. And it looked to me like he was struggling to breathe. He couldn't talk to tell me what was happening. And just as suddenly as it started, it stopped. And we realized that what had happened was was actually a seizure. Just hearing you describe the seizure, it's hard to keep my composure, to be honest, because it is very traumatic to see. Yeah. I had witnessed it a number of times before my husband got sick uh, in some other instances. And then when he got sick, um, he had had a number of seizures. Um, it is extremely hard to watch. 
I, I unfortunately, um, I guess a blessing in disguise, I knew what to do. And so I kind of went into just go mode and knew he always needed to be turned on his side. You needed to keep the airway clear. But just hearing you describe it is heart-wrenching because it's, it's one of those moments. And for the listeners out there, for those who are walking through this, it is, if you've had to, to witness that yourself, it is very, it is a very difficult thing to, to watch. And I try not to let my brain go back there. It's very difficult. So I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. It's such a scary experience. And and this was this is the side effect. This was a symptom of the brain tumor trying to reinsert itself, it sounds like. That's right. Honestly, it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen, especially not knowing what was happening. And at that point, he was still mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, he was up and walking around as it was happening, which was what made it even more confusing, just trying to figure out what was happening to him. So now he's had a couple of seizures. When did the doctors decide to say, you know, we need to figure out what exactly is going on with the tumor? It was after that follow-up of MRI. His oncologist said that he wanted us to speak with the Roswell Center in Buffalo. Mm-hmm also with the Dent Neurological Institute in Buffalo. Um, So we went and we met with the doctor at Dent. Mm -hmm. And that was when I tried to pretend like I didn't hear the doctor say a probable mutation to glioblastoma. Oh, gosh. Uh, We were talking about options um, for clinical trials. They unfortunately don't have many clinical trials for anaplastic astrocytoma. They're all for glioblastoma, but we couldn't get them enrolled in any without um, having a confirmation of the diagnosis. And they didn't feel that he was strong enough to endure another surgery to get the biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. All we have was probable diagnosis from the doctor at the Dent Institute. Uh, So now he was 41 going on 42? This was approaching the fall of 2017. He was 41. And how old was your daughter? She was three months old. So you had a three-month-old daughter and a husband who just found out that his acytoma had turned into glioblastoma. That's right. And after that point, his decline um, happened very rapidly. His symptoms actually very much started to mimic advanced stage dementia. Um, He lost his ability to find words. He lost muscle control um, so that he had a difficult time walking. What were the doctors saying at this point? I mean, what I can't, I think it's hard for me to find the words because I know exactly what that looks like. Um, What were the doctors telling you at this point were your options? We didn't really have any. We went in for a final MRI, actually just days before his birthday, just before Christmas. And they they did an MRI. And I remember holding my sister-in-law's hand before we got the results and crying hysterically because I was afraid of what he was going to say. Mm-hmm. Jesse couldn't even remember having the MRI two days before. 
I was very surprised to hear at that point that the tumor had responded and started to shrink. And his oncologist pulled me aside after the meeting and said, Katie, I need to be honest with you. I'm very concerned with his continued decline, even though the tumor has reduced in size. He believed that there was an additional side effect caused by the radiation that was causing his cognitive decline. And I asked him, is this going to kill him? And he looked at me straight faced and said, Katie, I'm not going to lie to you. It's a race between the tumor and the radiation. Wow. So what were the next steps after that? We continued his treatments. And I believe it was two days after this appointment that he woke up in the middle of the night with excruciating pain in his back. No matter what we did with him, we couldn't get him comfortable. I gave him some ibuprofen. I called his father over. And within a couple of hours, we had gotten the pain under control. Um, He refused to let me call a doctor or an ambulance. We were able to get him comfortable. We never were able to explain where the pain was coming from. The next couple of weeks were relatively uneventful. And then two days after Christmas, he woke up in the middle of the night with the same pain in his back. This time, I couldn't get him even the slightest bit comfortable. Even trying to move him made the pain worse. So I called 911. The ambulance came and got him. And that was the last time he left our house. Um, Excuse me. Take your time. It is a very emotional and hard thing to walk through, especially when you know that that is probably the last time they will see the house. Yeah. I still held on to hope, you know, up until the very end. We never talked about the what ifs. Um, What if he didn't make it? What would he want for me after his death? What would he want for his funeral arrangements? Because we believed that by even discussing it, we were admitting defeat. Um, So we, we never even talked about the what ifs. Just hearing you say that, that's exactly, exactly how Mike and I were. We never talked about the what ifs because we didn't want to let in that negative energy. We never talked about what would happen after or what I might need to do on his behalf if something went the wrong way. I mean, you saying that just sent a chill up my spine because that's exactly, exactly how Mike and I were. And by the time we finally couldn't lie to ourselves anymore, when the time finally came that we knew we were out of options, he couldn't talk anymore to tell me what his wishes were. So now when did he finally pass away? He passed away in February of 2018. Um, He spent about a month, a little over a month in the hospital. They found that the thing that was causing his pain was acute pancreatitis. Oh, wow. They said that it was a probable side effect of the chemotherapy. And while they were running tests, they found that he also had a pulmonary embolism, which if I hadn't um, gotten him into the hospital that day, things might have gone a different way uh, sooner. That could have itself been deadly. 
Mm-hmm. And while they were treating the pulmonary embolism, they also found that he had bleeding ulcers in his esophagus, likely caused by the steroids that he was on. It almost seemed like we were playing a game of Tetris. Every time we tried to treat something, the treatment would find something else that was wrong. And we finally got the bleeding under control and started working on the pulmonary embolism. In order to to treat the pancreatitis, we had to completely stop the chemotherapy and his infusions. And in just that three weeks, he went from having the minor small seizures in his face to having three grand mal seizures in a span of about an hour. And then they took him down for an MRI after having those grand mal seizures and found that the tumor um, had started invading the right half of his brain, um, where before it was only on the left. And they found that it had significantly increased in size in the three weeks since he had been off of his chemotherapy. It sounds like his body was just starting to let go. Yeah, everything was shutting down at that point. And finally, we sat down with his attending physician and said, what more can we do for him? And he said, all we can do is make him comfortable. We had the head of palliative care come in and talk to him and explain to him the situation. Jesse's philosophy on everything was always just, it is what it is. He never got upset about anything. He never got worked up. He never um, made a scene. Even when palliative care came in and said, there's nothing more that we can do, it was just, okay. One single tear rolled down his cheek. He reached for me and he just said, okay, what what do we do? So he understood what was going on? It seemed like he understood. They said that they recommended hospice therapy, that they were going to increase the seizure medications and make sure that he was on enough pain medications that he was not feeling any pain. So now after he passed, how old was your daughter at that point? She was just about seven months old. Seven months old. How did you handle all of that after he passed? If I'm being honest, the first couple of months after he passed, I was in such a fog that I don't remember much of anything. I remember a very good friend of mine drove in from South Carolina to spend time with me. She knew that when the time came that he passed away that she was going to come and be here. I remember spending a lot of time with his family. I'm very fortunate that we've all stayed very tight-knit since his passing. Other than that, I remember there were a couple of days when I said, I don't have what it takes right now to be a mother. I can't do this today. So I called my mother and said, can we come over? So there were a couple of cases where I just packed up my daughter and drove 40 minutes and let my parents take care of us for the weekend. And for those first couple of months, that's really the only thing that I remember. It's a lot to take on. It was. As you were working through this and getting through this, did you ever go to counseling? Did you and Jesse ever go to counseling when he was diagnosed? Did you what supports did you have for both you and he and for yourself after he was gone? Our main support system came from our families. We've been very fortunate that we both come from very tight-knit families. 
even within each other, are all very close. Also, we got involved with a church just after his diagnosis. So I didn't see a counselor, but I had counsel with my priest. Oh, okay. How is your faith playing into how you were healing? Because I know for me, and the reason I ask, I lean on my faith quite a bit. I'm only about nine months into the journey right now, and I lean on my faith quite a bit to to help me out. Honestly, it really shook my faith. I had a lot of anger. You know, the thing that my mom told me in the very beginning of the process is, you know, God's not going to bring the two of you together and then rip you apart like this after so short a time, after everything that I went through before he and I even met, that it really honestly shook my faith for a while. And I asked my priest, how do I not get angry? Mm -hmm. And the thing that she said to me, it stayed with me. It stays with me still. She asked me, when you were young, did you ever get so angry with your parents that you thought that you would never forgive them? And I said, of course, who doesn't? She said, Mm -hmm. that's exactly the point. Be as angry as you want. God can take it. Yep. That's what he's there for. And that's where our anger is supposed to go. It's supposed to be directed towards him. I've had many moments myself where I've been very angry at the, the amount of loss. But with that comes a silver lining. And with the amount of emotion that has been in this story, I am very excited to have you tell listeners where you are currently in your journey. You have met somebody truly wonderful, and there is a specialness to the relationship you have with your current spouse, and I would love for you to share a li- just a little bit about that with the listeners. Yeah, so I was very fortunate that I met a wonderful man only a very short time after Jesse's passing. He came into my life as a friend, but through time, we spent more time together. I wasn't looking to date. I wasn't looking for love. I didn't think that I would ever fall in love again because, I mean, to to love is to lose, right? You know, we, we get into these relationships and we know that this is the consequence that, you know, eventually this could happen. So why would I want to open myself up to that again? Um, so mm-hmm. for a long time, I, I kept my wall up. I wouldn't let him in, but he was just, he was always there. He became my best friend very quickly. He let me cry whenever I needed to. He asked me questions about Jesse, said he wanted to know who Jesse was. He wanted to know what kind of man he was. And, you know, as we got closer to being in a relationship with each other, said that he wanted to know how to be the kind of man that Jesse would be proud to have taking care of me and his daughter. That's amazing. He really is a wonderful man. So it was it was difficult reconciling that against still dealing with my grief. Mm-hmm. No matter how hard I tried to push, he wouldn't let me push him away um, until I finally let my walls down. And um, we got married uh, just about two years after we met. And I am expecting a child in December. Um, But here's the truly remarkable thing. Life is incredibly ironic. And uh, my new husband, John, is not able to have any more children of his own naturally. So we knew that if we wanted to have a child together, we were facing 
another round of in vitro fertilization. Okay. We were discussing our options. Um, we could have his procedure reversed and try to see if we could have a child together. Um, we could go through a brand new IVF from scratch or coming back to what I had said about the IVF where I conceived my daughter is we had a much larger number of embryos um, that were of high quality. They were still viable. They were still existing in a cryobank in Syracuse, New York. So we decided that the, our best option was, in fact, to give my daughter a full sibling. And I went through an IVF procedure using one of Jesse's children. So I want to take that in for a minute because that is one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. Yeah. So your husband's name is John, correct? Yes. And not only was he supportive of you and fell in love with you, after losing your first husband, but you are now pregnant with Jesse's second child and you're carrying his memory forward with another sibling for your daughter and John is right by your side. He is. Wow. That is just so heartwarming to hear where you are in this process right now. And it fills my heart with joy to hear how far you've come. Our experiences, and this is probably a first, are not very far apart. And so it it really makes me feel so joyful and happy uh, to hear where you are. And so now you're due again when? I'm due December 5th. So you'll be having a Christmas baby around the same time as Jesse's birthday. Yes. That is awesome. Yeah, it, they won't let me go past my due date because of my age, but um, I was kind of secretly hoping that they would and that maybe the baby would share a birthday with Jesse. We have decided also that no matter what, um, this baby's middle name will be Jesse. So now just share with me one thing about John, just a little something about the man that he is for you. John is an incredibly hard worker. He is my best friend. I can tell him anything. He is an amazing father. He's got two children of his own from a previous marriage, and he did not hesitate to step right in and help me with my daughter, but he never tries to replace her father. Um, and I feel like that's an important distinction to make that you know, she doesn't call him dad. She calls him DJ, um, which uh, we designated for Daddy John. <laughs> we don't want her to grow up not knowing who Jesse was. And it blows my mind sometimes just thinking about none of this really seemed like he would consider doing things any other way. It's just common sense to John that, you know, this is just what makes sense. Well, he sounds like a truly remarkable man. And I'm blown away by how far you've come. It is still a journey. It is it has been three and a half years since Jesse has passed. Just about. So the grieving journey is always a process. And we meet people along the way that lift us up and help us out. And you are still in touch with all of Jesse's family, correct? Yes, we're all very close. Which is amazing as well. Um, and I am just so happy to hear that. What is something you want caregivers, other caregivers, 
and the listeners in general to know about the caregiving experience because it can be a very dark and lonely path at times. So what is it that you would like them to know? I know how scary a diagnosis of glioblastoma is, but even so, you can't lose hope. You can't stop fighting. I know for us, the biggest thing was just having emotional support, knowing that we could just call somebody and just talk or vent or that they were there if we did need them, even if there wasn't anything anybody could do right away. I know for us, family wasn't always right here. You know, our parents and our siblings were here whenever we needed them, but they all live a fair distance. So just knowing we could pick up the phone if we needed to, or that somebody could get in the car and, and race out here if it was if it was necessary. But that emotional support is is so vital as well. It really is. Yeah. In addition to the family, I had a couple of close confidants. One of my closest friends that I've known for 30 years uh, moved in with me shortly after Jesse passed. And, you know, just having her there um, meant so much. It gave you somebody in the house so you weren't so alone. Yes. Yeah. The silence could be deafening. So now does your daughter know what's coming? She does. Is she excited? Very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us and sharing your story. I know it was not easy. It's so vitally important for everybody to understand that being a caregiver is just as important and just as tiring as the patient's experience. And we walk alongside them. We are right there with them. We are their glue. And it can be a very exhausting experience and very overwhelming. And so for anybody else who's out there who's listening to this story, you are not alone. And there are many of us who join you and we are right there with you. Katie, thank you so much for being with us today. And I look forward to hearing about your journey as we get into the winter. I am so excited for you and John. And I, if I had a hat on, I would tip my hat to him <laughs> because it takes a pretty special, amazing person to walk the path that he is walking. And I typically say lightning doesn't strike the same place twice, but man, after everything you've been through, it sure has for you and, and you deserve it. Thank you. John is certainly my reward after a lot of hard times. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And we will be right back. Is God good when life isn't? It's a question we ask ourselves over and over again especially for those of us who have gone through a traumatic event. It's a question that Max Licato asks in the book that he writes, You'll Get Through This, the book that I referenced earlier on in this episode. Is God good when life isn't? I think back to Katie's interview when she talked about how her mom had said, after everything that you've been through, even before you met Jesse, and the troubles that you've been having with infertility, and now Jesse's diagnosis, there's no way God is going to put you through all of that to take Jesse away. He'll get you through this. We tend to draw that line in the sand, don't we? There's this imaginary line, and we just say, okay, we've been through a lot, but get us through this, and we'll be okay with everything else. I did it myself. Before Mike was diagnosed, we had suffered so many miscarriages. By the time the adoption rolled around, 
I was just finally starting to pursue my dream of being a fiction author, and here comes the diagnosis. And then all of a sudden, the adoption goes away. I found myself sitting in our baby's room, staring at the empty crib and thinking, okay, it's okay. We will get through this. I will get through this. I can handle the miscarriages and the loss of those babies. I can handle the loss of this adoption. I can handle the diagnosis that was just handed to my husband. Just don't take him away. Don't let him die. Just get us through this and I can deal with everything else. I drew a line in the sand. There's a part that I'll be paraphrasing that Max Licato writes in that chapter. He talks about a friend of his and her husband. They were handed a lot. She wrote in a blog, multiple hospital stays with our daughter were exhausting, but I held faith, losing Brian's family members one by one until there was only one left who was then diagnosed with stage four brain cancer was incomprehensible but I still held faith. Being hospitalized seven and a half weeks with a placental abruption was terrifying, but I held faith. I held to the faith that God works for my good. And though I do not necessarily understand the trials, I trusted God's bigger unseen plan. God and I had a deal. I would endure all of these trials that came my way. He knew where my line was drawn and I knew in my heart he would never cross it. But he did. And I delivered a stillborn baby girl. With my other daughter still at home, on a feeding tube, and her future health completely unknown, it was just a foregone conclusion that this baby we wanted and loved would be saved. She wasn't. My line in the sand was crossed. My one-way deal with God shattered. That sticks with me a great deal because that's the lesson of all of this. That line will always be crossed. We have to get to the point where we pull that line away, where we understand and accept that life brings us trials. We have to endure a lot of pain. And it is not always fair. It is not just. There is no rhyme or reason for the amount of suffering that some of us have to endure. But if we've learned anything from today's episode, it's that good can triumph. And Katie is that inspiration. Look at how far she's come. Look at the baby that she is going to have. Another child with her late husband, with the support of her new husband. It doesn't get any better than that. So for those of us who are still walking this journey, remember, that good can come from a bad situation, and that God is good even when life isn't. We are all in this together, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel, whether patient or caregiver, family member, or if you are on the front lines of this and you are helping us to find a cure, those doctors and nurses and amazing oncologists and clinical trial experts who are fighting this battle with us, good can come out of this, and it will. We just have to have hope, we have to be patient, we have to be kind to ourselves, and we have to have faith. Until next month, I look forward to hearing all of your comments, hearing your thoughts for today's episode. Know that I am walking there alongside of you. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, 
or the website, thegameongleopodcast.com, where you can find all of the episodes and the blog that I write, Grace, Guidance, and Gratitude. And don't forget to visit brainsforthecure.org. They have some amazing resources there. We'll see you next month. Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Game on Glio podcast. Make sure to visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show via Podbean, iTunes, Google, Apple, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like this show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Glio podcast.